Broadcasting from the Unshackled Studios in Melbourne, this is Will's Front, brought to you by the Unshackled.net. Now here's Tim Wills. Hello, everyone, and welcome back for another Wilmsfront featured interview show on this Sunday, the 12th of March, 2023. We are back live on YouTube, on the Unshackled YouTube channel for now, uh, also on the Tim Wilms DLive, and of course, continuing on the Wilmsfront Odyssey channel. Entropy is back, so I put the link into the YouTube chat so you can ask questions of my guest and send through super chats. It is 8.30 p.m. here in Melbourne, Victoria, where here and around the world three years ago, it was the beginning of what I called the March Madness or what my guest tonight refers to as the beginning of the Great Fear, the first which ushered in the first round of pandemic lockdowns. Gigi Foster is a professor with the School of Economics at the University of New South Wales. She has a Bachelor of Arts in Ethics, Politics and Economics from Yale University in the United States and a PhD in Economics from the the University of Maryland. Uh, Gigi was vocal right from the beginning about the economic, social, health destruction that the COVID lockdowns would bring for no net benefit. Three years on, we are certainly counting the costs with an inflation crisis, uh, excess deaths, and the degradation of our health system. Uh, Gigi Foster has authored numerous books, the latest being The Great COVID Panic, co-authored by herself and uh, Paul uh, Fritches and Michael Baker and published by the Brownstone Institute, which is a libertarian-ish uh, institute founded by libertarian author and commentator Jeffrey Tucker in 2021, where Gigi is the senior scholar. Her most recent book is Do Lockdowns and Border Closures Serve the Greater Good? A Cost-Benefit Analysis of the Australian Reaction to COVID-19, co-authored with Sanjeev Sablok, who has also been a guest on this program, and uh, that was published by Conacourt Publishing in 2022. Uh, Professor Gigi Foster, welcome to Wilmsfront. Thank you so much for having me, Tim. It's a great pleasure to be speaking with you. Uh, now, my first uh, question uh, to you is, how did you f handle uh, handle being during the great fear one of the rational voices during that hysteria because uh, i know a lot of people have tried to uh normal people have uh, forgotten it but it's seared into to my memory but uh, you were very courageous uh, appearing on hostile mainstream media including on Q&A, being accused of advocating for people to die. You've repeatedly gone back on Q&A. In fact, you're going back on tomorrow night. That's right, yeah. Um, well, it's interesting. I've had this similar question from quite a number of people in the resistance. And I really, I, I felt at the time that it was so obvious that what I was saying was being completely ignored by the other side. And that therefore, even if I was wrong, it was something that was a signal that the decision making was not coming from a place of scientific analysis and um, empirically validated health promotion. So the fact that they wouldn't even give it a hearing was to me the, 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 the signal that, you know, I've got to keep speaking because we've got to get a diversity of views heard. And and I was also quite sure that I that I was basically right. Um, I mean, it was it was very clear how much destruction was happening, and it was not at all clear that there was going to be a benefit from lockdowns because lockdowns, in fact, had been re rejected as a policy option prior to 2020 when governments were faced with a respiratory pandemic. And we see that in the pandemic management plans, which were summarily cast aside in mid-March 2020. And so I guess I felt more than anything that it was a great privilege, really, and, and a great honor to be able to, um, to, to be the voice of dissent during that period because we needed it uh, you know we we as society needed to remember that there were multiple different ways you know to, to to approach a problem and multiple different ideas about what might be right and i and i wanted very much to discuss the the alternatives with people who were on the other side that's something that really didn't happen until um, even even very recently there was in november of last year november 2020 
a discussion in Brisbane, which was started by an organization you may know, the Brisbane Dialogues. They essentially exist to try to elevate the quality of public discussion around big issues. And they held a dialogue, uh, which lasted for maybe an hour and a half or so, with people from across the spectrum of belief about what we did right and wrong in COVID. Um, and it was called something like, how should we manage the next pandemic? And so it was a, a, an actual discussion. It wasn't like ABC Q&A, where you essentially you're playing gotcha and just trying to win debaters' points. Um, it was much more of the style that what I would have liked to have seen during those two two years when we were all you know suffering from all of these mad policy decisions. So you know I know it, it was true that a lot of people thought I was a you know a mad woman, and there were lots of memes and other kinds of abuse and denigration. I was defamed on Twitter, even though I'm not even on Twitter. Um, I was called a granny killer and a you know Trump cannot death cult warrior and a piece of human excrement. I received a few nasty things in the mail. A couple people said they wanted me to die on the phone. Um, you know, but. I have a very strong family and very strong um, belief in myself, I guess. And I just don't really care what other people say about me. It says more about them when, when they will attack an, another person with those kinds of epithets. So uh, for me, it's been an amazing experience to observe human nature up close in a crisis like this. It's greatly informed my understanding of, of our condition as humans and the motivations that we are subjected to uh, in our because of our nature. And therefore, it has really helped me to think about how to design institutions going forward so that a disaster of this sort has less chance of befalling us again. Uh, you're very tough to be able to just shake that off because there's a lot of people who would just curl up in in bed and not, not want to 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 get up but uh, as as i said you've you've kept going on programs like q a when it's where it's basically four against against one do you sort of have to prepare like uh, to uh, do essentially debate prep um, I mean, I, I usually, and I'll do this tomorrow afternoon, you know, they, they give you the final questions they're planning to ask, even though they aren't always the ones they do ask, um, the, the afternoon of the show. And I'll go through and um, look up a few basic statistics, you know, what are we at in terms of COVID deaths in Australia? What's the inflation rate? You know, some basic stuff so that I can, I can have those figures at my fingertips. But generally speaking, it's, you know, the arguments that happen, the, 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 the points that need to be made are points that I've been making for two and a half or three years. Um, so really, I mean, I have more of the attitude of Henry Kissinger, right? When he approached a press conference, I don't know when this was, sometime in the, in the 60s, I guess. And, you know, he walked up to the podium and the room was full of journalists with their papers and, you know, pencils at the ready. And he announced into the microphone, right, who's got questions for my answers? You know, and it's that sort of thing. Because uh, I'm sure I'll be asked all sorts of nonsense, and you know, under all sorts of ridiculous terms of reference. Um, and the key is to not accept the terms of the person asking the question, if possible. If you don't agree with those terms, you need to question the terms and you need to do it fast. And you need to try to get in some sensible, sane information and just a different perspective. That's why I, I do these things, right? To try to reach some of the people who are still either on the fence or captured by the ideology. And I don't mind if they think I'm a witch. As if it makes them think a little bit, then that's, that's worth it from my perspective. Well, it sounds like you've got the the Q and A formula and how to to counter it uh, down to a, a T because I know that it's not actually an impromptu Q and A. It's very carefully planned with the the questions pre pre approved. So you're very across that. Yeah, well, I mean, it's, it, things can always surprise you, right? And as I say, they sometimes do ask questions that they didn't advertise to you in advance. And certainly if people bring stuff up that was not on the uh, the pre-planned program, then, you know, you have to be able to improvise a bit. And it is difficult. I don't want to minimize it. I mean, it's not a, you know, it's not for the faint-hearted, but I, I do enjoy it. I mean, I enjoy... <laughs> I guess, you know, when I was a kid, I used to have conversations with my family up until the wee hours of the morning about everything from religion to, you know, politics. And people would disagree. And we loved it. We loved getting into the issues and thinking about stuff and, you know, thinking about what argument would work against that claim. And is that actually a plausible thing to say? And well, well how would you measure that thing? And, you know, it's just interesting and it brings you closer to people. And I feel like we've lost a lot of that art in, in, in the West really today. And particularly in Australia, 
um, where people are so obsessed with compliance. Oh my goodness, you know, social approval is so important. Um, and I guess this is what we're talking about is, you know, the extent to which many people are so, so affected by social disapproval. Um, and, and I can see why that would be true if you're very lonely, if you think that social approval is something you need in order to feel good about yourself. I just don't feel that way. And, and I probably have my parents mainly to thank for that. Um, but also my children, my partner, my, my, my close friends, you know. Um, so I, I think it's, it's really just a question of, I guess, being, um, you know, trying to work towards a society in which we can, in fact, have those conversations again and recognize that diversity of thought and diversity of perspective is a strength. But it's only a strength if we can talk to each other. If we try to cancel each other and shut each other down, then we lose that source of strength, and which is essentially where innovation and growth come from. Um, you know, new ideas come from a minority every time. So I, I guess I feel good about that. I feel like every time I wake up in the morning, I've got a, a reason to, you know, continue my work and, and try to open more eyes and, and try to work with the other side if possible. And despite the fact that they may be hurling abuse at me. Exactly right. And that's uh, what you talk about in the, the book, the, the innovation of ideas. Now, at the beginning of the, the book, uh, the first part is the the great fear. Uh, you and your co-authors introduce three characters as an amalgamation of people representative of the the population, uh, condensing the population into three people: uh, Jane, James, and Jasmine. To explain not just how the great fear took hold, but how how they how how what where they were at, what they were thinking about COVID. Uh, how that led to the second phase, which is the second part of your book, The Illusion of Control. Uh, so uh, explain who do these characters represent? Yeah, so these are, as you say, three archetypes. So nobody really was fully a Jane Jasmine or a, or a James for every single moment of, of the panic. But um, they do represent sort of different ways of reacting and, as you say, different places where people were initially. So Jane is the first one we introduce, and she is the canonical scared member of the population, a person who may not have initially been too frightened of COVID, you know, in early March, let's say, just heard something about, you know, somebody ate a bat in China, and now we have this problem, you know, but kind of was going about her daily business until she started to hear really scary things. Uh, like people falling over in the street in China or in Milan or New York City. Uh, she started to hear about stock markets going crazy, and she didn't really know what that meant, but I thought maybe that is probably a bad sign. Maybe, you know, there's a really big problem on, on, on our hands here. And then there was the modeling that came out where, you know, hundreds of millions of people were, were predicted to be dying of this thing if we didn't do something big. You know, this was the Neil Ferguson modeling that came out of, um, of London. And so... She started to get extremely fearful um, and she started to get so fearful that it essentially uh, her fear crowded out the rest of her emotions. Fear is a very, very powerful human emotion. It's one of the reasons why fear is used so much by people who want to get into power or retain power. And, um, and you know, you, you could see that. Yeah, I think I just saw something from one of your listeners talking about the Matt Hancock files. Absolutely. You see the use of fear in the government messaging and, and the knowledge that fear is so potent. And therefore, that's the thing we want to press. Press that button and we'll be able to, to, to pass whatever laws we want um, and, and whatever draconian freedom restrictions we want. So, so Jane was the one who uh, became very fearful. And in Australia, as many places overseas, it was not that the politicians initially were um, trying to, to restrict people's freedoms. In fact, even in early March, here in Australia, many politicians were saying pretty sensible things like, yeah, it's a nasty virus. And if you're older and you know sick, then watch out. But if you're basically under 50 and, and healthy, you'll be fine. But after that modeling came out and after everybody started getting so scared, the population, their constituents, so scared that they were essentially demanding protection from this fearsome thing, right? The politicians caved into that fear themselves. They, they basically were cowardly. They did not stand up to the fear and say, look, everybody, you're, you're overblowing this. This is, this is not what it seems. I've looked at the data because I looked at the data at the time and many of us did. And it was clear this was not, you know, the, the, the Spanish flu. This was not the plague. <laughs> this, was, this was another 
respiratory virus, another coronavirus. We'd seen them before. Yes, it was going to be nasty, perhaps for people in the older age brackets, but that's that that means those are the people we need to protect, obviously. And instead of these ridiculous, you know, blanket lockdowns or blanket restrictions, it's a one-size-fits-all policy for a non-one-size-fits-all problem. And so, you know, that that made the politicians in Australia essentially um, cave into the fear because they were afraid that if they weren't seen by the population to do something big about this big, fearsome thing, then they were going to be kicked out of office. And that set us on a path of political decisions that were wrapped in the flag of health promotion, which was one of the most sickening parts of, of this whole episode. So that was Jane. The second person or archetype in our book is James. And James is the opportunist. James is, is basically the person who is at the heart of most economic models, actually, if any of your audience have ever studied um, economic man, uh, homo economicus. James is essentially not that concerned with right and wrong, although he, he doesn't want to be a bad person usually, but he's looking for opportunity. He's looking for ways to advance himself. And so wherever he happened to be, it could have been in business, it could have been at the top of a governmental department somewhere, it could have been in politics. Um, he looked around and saw people going kind of mad with fear and saw governments reacting with huge actions and thought, hmm, how can I make a buck out of this? So you had Jameses who were then selling huge quantities of hand sanitizer to panicked governments, for example. You had Jameses who were at the heads of the health ministries who thought, oh, this is my chance. I can now, you know, be the savior. I can be seen as, you know, I will save you all from COVID. You know, it's, it's it really, I mean, there were, there were sex symbols. You know, Brett Sutton in Victoria, he was definitely a sex symbol, right? So, I mean, this was an opportunity for advancement. Um, advancement politically, advancement in, in monetary terms, advancement in terms of social status. So James took those opportunities that he saw. He was not losing his head. He was using his head while everybody else lost theirs. And, and that continued in different forms all throughout the, the COVID period because there were different ways in which he could profit from people's panic or people's missteps or, or people's uh, tragic uh, you know, losses. And the final archetype, of course, was Jasmine, who is the skeptic. Jasmine is kind of, you know, a little bit apart from the crowd, uh, doesn't really mind if she has a different opinion from the crowd, is sort of used to that, at least in some things. Uh, we mentioned religion and politics, you know, say Jasmine probably found that frequently in her life she disagreed with a lot of people about both religion and politics, um, and that was perfectly fine with her kind of thing, right? And so she essentially was the one who looked at the data and thought to herself, wait a minute, this, what we're doing does not seem commensurate with the reality here. And in fact, there are things we should be doing that we're not doing, again, like protecting the older people in the, in the population and thinking about aged care facilities and all that stuff, right? We just hardly talked about that at all in the first six months of COVID, whereas that was where the deaths were happening. Um, if they were happening, happening at all, that's where they were most concentrated in Australia and elsewhere. So, so Jasmine, you know, despaired throughout the COVID period and, and sometimes really just couldn't talk to people. People would call our names. You know, Jasmine was basically myself and my co-authors. And we have been adding to our ranks, um, I'm very happy to say, right? Over the last year or so, there have been huge inroads, I think, made by the resistance here in Australia and overseas, waking people up to what has actually happened. And, and it's difficult. And, and we maybe we'll talk about that. But psychologically, it's a huge shock for people to come to an understanding of what has actually happened here, partly because it's just so hideous, uh, people in power abusing their power in this way and causing so much human destruction, but also because they themselves often were part of the, the whole machinery that caused destruction. They were they were telling people to wear masks. They were yelling at people to get away and, and not go to playgrounds. They were keeping their own children home. Um, you know, they they were visiting harm upon their own parents by agreeing that they they wouldn't see them in the aged care home and letting them die alone. I mean, these are these are horrific things to 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 realize afterwards that you did and that they didn't actually help anything. In fact, they hurt people on that. Most people want to be thought of by themselves, certainly, and, and by others as a good person. And so to see that clearly is extremely painful. So I think that's going to be a long road for a lot of people in Australia, particularly at places like Australia and Canada, France, where we saw just a lot of kind of vigilantism on the, you know, on the fanatical path of, of masking and lockdowns and, and social distancing and all the other kinds of nonsense. Um, people were part of this and they're going to have to reckon with it. 
we'll get to how the the, the Jane and the Jameses moved on uh, later in our discussion. Uh, but I want to move now to uh, calculating the the cost benefit analysis of lockdowns, which it forms a, a chapter in the the Great uh, COVID Panic. Uh, but it's expanded to a to whole book in the your dedicated. Uh, cost benefit analysis do lockdown serve the the greater good and so obviously need inputs to calculate a lockdown cost benefit and uh, so you used a well th uh, three mainly well-established bench benchmarks and so they are international development goals such as the united nations Millennium Development Goals. Uh, then there are uh, measures of well-being and quality of life. Uh, the, the acronym is WellBees. I hope I've pronounced that right. And uh, Qualies. And then obviously, your first book was published September 2021, which is Australia hadn't even entered the the end game yet. And obviously, by 2022, uh, when your second book was published, there was a lot more data, and there's even more uh, data. Uh, three years on uh so my first question is uh how uh, how did you you come to well first explain how uh, what are these imports and first uh why should this data be trusted because obviously throughout uh the the great covid panic we've seen so much junk data models calculations yeah, yeah. No, that's a really good question. And I'm, I'm, you know, it's great when people actually question um, the choices of experts, particularly these days. You know, we've had this this culture where you're not supposed to say anything. If you don't have a degree in a discipline, you can't actually ask whether, you know, some expert is actually telling the truth or is what they're doing is reasonable. And that's been very bad <laughs> because it's prevented us from asking questions about, for example, some of the epidemiological models which were used as the rationale for lockdowns, for example. But these models only considered a very narrow part of the human experience during COVID, which was, you know, they, they basically talk about a particular virus and they talk about how fast does it, does it transmit through the population using these, you know, infected and survived and recovered models, SIR models. And they're not talking about any of the collateral damage that is created when you stop an economy, when you, you know, force people to stay in their homes. Now, the reason why it was clear to me early on that, that, that pressing pause on the economy in that way was going to have costs is because it's basically just obvious. <laughs> if, if people are not able to go to work, if they're not able to see their friends, if they're not able to see their families, if they're supposed to be staying away from other human beings, these are all uh, changes to the way we normally work and live, which will be bad for us in the form economically, of course, of not being able to basically go to work and get our money. Of course, we did have JobKeeper come in to try to help with that, but also more fundamentally bad for us as, as creatures, bad for us as human beings, because we need each other. We are social people. We need a job and, and, and professional uh, sense of meaning in order to feel good about our lives, that we're using our lives in a useful way, or we need to have some kind of job, even if it's not paid, if it's you know unpaid labor, fine, but being able to go and volunteer somewhere, it gives us a sense of meaning. And, and contributing to our society is very important to our mental health. So is seeing our friends. Just having those connections is very, very important. And this was known in the well-being literature for years and years and years. Um, and, and in fact, interestingly, it was the well-being economists uh, community that first started to call out how bad this was going to be in March. They were among the first off the, off the rank to say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. If we do this, we're going to be sacrificing a lot of a lot of human welfare and for what right so that benefit was always this sort of magical benefit of oh we'll stop the virus flatten the curve you know okay how does that work exactly there is a bit of facile logic you know if you don't breathe on somebody else they can't catch your bugs but on the other hand you're stuck at home with people and and we know that indoors is where a lot of things pass in fact every winter we all get more colds why because partly because people aren't going outside more they're inside more and they're breathing the exhaled air of other people and they're closer to them. So how it is that people being inside more was going to prevent more transmission of 
bugs when you did still have to go and get groceries. So there had to be a bit of cross transmission. It was never entirely made clear. Right? So the causes were not really interrogated, which is another clue, just like the clue of people not wanting to listen to my arguments or anybody's arguments who were on the other side. This was another clue that what was going on was not about science, but in fact, really more about politics and kind of almost a religious or sacrificial um, response, a response that tapped into people's desire to have sacrifices thrown at this nasty threat in hopes that it would go away. Similarly to when back in the you know early uh, Americas, those the people who lived there used to sacrifice their own children hoping for a good harvest. And in fact, I drew that parallel in one of my op-eds for one of the broadsheets, I forget, I think in 2021. Um, I think the title of that piece was Stop This Human Sacrifice, because that's what it was. Um, so, so for me, it was quite obvious that this was a bad path to go down without a, a pure, a full costing. So I waited for the government here in Australia, or any of the governments, the Commonwealth or the states, to come out with some justification of their policies on the traditional basis. So the traditional grounds on which a policy is justified is the ground of cost benefit, that this policy in estimation with our best guesses at the time is likely to yield a net benefit for our people. And that simply didn't come out, right? There was just no no word about that at all from any of the governments. And we found out afterwards that some government economists in the back rooms had done those kinds of analyses and then they had been smothered by their governments early on. So this happened in the Netherlands, for example. So in August 2020, I was invited very, very generously by David Limbrick to address the uh, Victorian State Parliament. And I used that as an opportunity to draw up a four-page proof of concept sort of uh, cost-benefit analysis where I sketched out what I thought were going to probably be the main costs. And the difference between my analysis and the epidemiological modeling, so going back to your question of whether we should trust it, is that what I was trying to do in the, in the tradition of economics was to think about all of the costs and benefits to all groups in society from a particular policy direction. Now, you never have perfect information about this. No economist ever does. It's a very messy discipline for that reason. We have to make guesses all the time with imperfect information and, and poor measures often of the things that really matter. But you try your best because if you don't, then you're flying blind with policy and policy that can really affect a lot of people. So you want to at least have some belief or some, some reason to believe that what you're doing probably is going to be positive on net for people. So, so I essentially wrote up this, this cost-benefit analysis where the main costs were going to be, A, that when people are locked in their, in their homes, instead of being able to have normal lives, their mental health suffers. And B, when we spend what we had been spending, you know, this job keeper had started by then and, and various other expenditures on all sorts of stuff, from masks to signage to bureaucracy, you know, bureaucracies to check and trace and track and all sorts of stuff like that we were going to accumulate debt and that debt was going to need to be repaid and it's going to be repaid by future generations who then won't be able to enjoy as much other stuff from their governments because the other expenditure line items that governments usually spend upon would be crowded out to some extent by the debt repayments. So those were the two biggies. And then there were a few other ones like keeping kids out of school and therefore making it, you know, making them basically not able to acquire as much human capital during their schooling lives and be less productive when they were older then. And, and, and then, you know, maybe suicides. We weren't sure about the suicides at the time. It wasn't a very big number, but we put it in there. I put it in there. And so, you know, these kinds of things and crowded out healthcare, of course, which I mentioned, but I didn't even, I didn't even cost it because I didn't need to in order to find already that just with those few aspects of costs, there was basically no way that lockdowns were going to be delivering a net benefit to Australia um, because the benefits just weren't plausibly going to possibly be able to reach higher than the value of those costs. Um, and so I gave this to the government and I, and I, of course, hoped that they would, you know, naively, I suppose, that they would take it and say, oh, thanks very much for showing us how we should do this. You know, we'll now do the proper analysis of this policy. Ha ha ha. All right. So that didn't happen. And so then, as you know, many months later, I was uh, after I finished the great COVID panic with Paul and Michael. Uh, by the way, his name is Paul Freiters. That's how you pronounce that. And Michael Baker. I, I knew that I. Uh, that's all right. That's fine. <laughs> everybody, everybody messes it up. He's used to it. Um, I, I got together with uh, Sanjeev Sablok, who, as you may know, was a Victorian Treasury economist um, and, and left the Treasury back in 2020 because they, um, they, they didn't see eye to eye on the policies being implemented. 
And he helped me as a, basically a research assistant, excellent research assistant, to expand that proof of concept cost-benefit analysis to uh, to a, whatever it is now. I don't know, several hundred pages worth of full costing out from, from you know to the extent that we could using all the cost categories that we that I had included plus any other ones. So, for example, there were some benefits to lockdowns that were not anticipated, such as there were fewer um, homicides because fewer people got drunk and, you know, at, at bars and accidentally off themselves. So we count that. And there were fewer vehicle accidents and therefore deaths from vehicle accidents. So we count that. Now, generally speaking, you wouldn't put a whole society into lockdown just in order to avoid those deaths, right? But we include them nonetheless, because they are possible benefits to figure out what the other benefits are, the ones that actually had been used as in some sense, the rationale um, we took the evidence that's been generated in other countries that didn't have nearly as strict restrictions as Australia did. So we take Sweden as one possible counterfactual, and we also took the sort of average of, of a bunch of other European and, and basically million plus uh, Western developed countries that had low restrictions. And we say, well, how many COVID deaths did they have? And as a very, very generous estimate of the plausible benefits of lockdowns, we take those COVID deaths. Now, of course, that's that's assuming that lockdowns would save every single COVID death, right? That we could have had, and that we would have had that level of COVID death that was was seen in Sweden or or in Europe or wherever. Even though in Asia, generally, COVID deaths have been lower, now the rates have been lower for various reasons that we we don't need to go into. But there's lots of reasons why there's been variation in COVID death rates around the world that haven't been explored um, because of the fanaticism during this period. So. You know, we, we use very generous estimates for how much we might have benefited from these lockdowns. And we also use very conservative estimates of the costs. And using those uh, figures, we end up with a bottom line result that the Australian lockdowns were at least 68 times as costly as they could possibly have been uh, delivered to us in benefit. So, yes, there you are. You can see I, I was uh, interviewed about this by my employer, UNSW. I, I should do a shout out to you, NSW. Thank you for not firing me during this period. Thank you for not trying once to muzzle me. Um, I still have a, uh, a tenured professorship at the university. And they, they finally did actually come to the party and, and let me write up a, a little article about this. So that's what you're seeing there on the screen. Uh, which is if you want a, a summary of uh, Gigi's books, uh, which you definitely sure it should buy. I'm going to plug them again at the end of the program. Uh, that uh, UNSW Spotlight article is a, a good place to start. Thanks very much. Yeah, I'm very pleased that the, that the um, media office decided to actually run with that. They ran with it in early January when everybody was on Christmas holidays, but at least they ran with it. The UNSW bookstore still does not stock either of my books. Um, and I've had a conversation directly with the uh, the bookseller there and they're just not interested. So, you know, this is but this I, I expect that. Right. I mean, we still and it shows you as well where Australia is. We, we just are not yet at the point where we can actually have logical conversations about what happened, much less talk about where we need to go moving forward from here. And I think that's where the resistance really needs to do some serious effort, uh, put in some serious hard yards there, because if we can draw up the blueprints for what needs to be in place, you know, for to, to prevent a future tragedy like this, then when the time is right, we can present them to our society and, and at least start have something to start with uh, in terms of talking about how to move out of this darkness together. There is some I, uh, the reflection and uh, what, 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 what you, what you talk, what you talk about, in uh, the end of your uh, your book, uh, that there is some retros retrospection uh, by uh, some of the the Janes and Jameses. Uh, now, as I mentioned, when you you published the the the, the Great COVID Panic in September twenty twenty one, Australia uh, wasn't yet at the uh, end games, uh, but uh, your predictions about how. Uh, Jane, James, and Jasmine's would would encounter or cope with the the end game turned out to be very accurate. There was uh, after the book a final end game test, which uh, which was the Omicron variant, which Australia uh, held the line against. Uh, um, or you'd say amazingly or thankfully held the line against further lockdowns and so did the the rest of the world 
And so you mentioned uh, that uh, Jane, she eventually just had enough and wanted to to go on with her normal life and probably hasn't reflected about her conduct uh, during the 2020 and 2021. Uh, James's end game was the, the vaccine and that was certainly here in Victoria, Daniel Andrews end game that uh, we can open up even though we've got the most cases ever because we've got this vaccination target. And uh, also uh, the Jasmines starting to get their lives back and being joined by many others. Uh, but there are still even today what I call residual uh, Janes who still uh, fret and uh, rage about the, the COVID case and death numbers which are published weekly now. There are still the, the Jameses who are still talking about masks and ventilation and testing and all they, they say they're not for lockdowns but they've got all these uh, interventions that they want to try and, and sell and then there are some residual Jasmines who say the the globalists and the governments, they're still planning a, a, a another crisis, a, plan, a pandemic, uh, we better watch out. Yeah, yeah, no, you're right. And, um, and it's been frustrating to see all of those, really. Um, you know, you have the development, for example, of the Sage group here, which is essentially the scientific home of the Janes, as, as far as I can tell. And, um, and you certainly see opportunism everywhere, you know, anytime anybody can capitalize from from a crisis, uh, you know, they, the, the James's will do that. So I, that doesn't surprise me. I, I am, I am dismayed at the continuing obsession with fearing something, you know, this just Janish attitude is extremely damaging. It's, it's just, it's just a no win ideology. You know, it's just a, it's a, you're not going to get anywhere with that kind of attitude, you know, being scared of everything and to institutionalize fear the way that it has been done. is just so, it's such a bad example for our children. It's just such a bad way to be, be living one's life. Um, and But with the Jasmines, yes. I mean, I am frustrated. I, and I've put a bunch of blogs up to try to dispel some of the most, um, I think, unhelpful um, visions of that have been coming out of the resistance, such as that, for example, a, uh, you know, a global cabal that's been planning destruction of the world for years and years is finally getting its way. And, you know, they're just waiting and watching while this whole thing plays out just according to their script. And, you know, and that Klaus Schwab is like a, a marionette kind of, you know, pulling all the strings and, and everybody has I to did, follow him. I did discover when I was researching this program that you are on the World Economic Forum website from 2015. Yeah, so people people say that. I, I don't know why I'm there. I think what it is is that I was invited twice to the ADC Forum in Brisbane um, Leadership what's it called leadership retreat or something which is adc stands for australian davos connection right so this is like a an eight thousand dollar a pop registration event and i went because you know i'm curious and i want to see what this thing is like and they seem to be bringing together a lot of big you know big powerful people and so why not i'll, I'll tell them what i think about the world um and i and i went and it really felt both times it felt like a a, a really really big time um, old boys school reunion, basically, right? A networking club. And there were fancy pants, you know, keynote speeches about AI and space and, you know, fancy new technology and stuff like that. And people were slapping each other on the back and pretending that they owned the world and were going to solve the world's problems in a, you know, half an hour speech or whatever. And, you know, it's just, it, it was basically a networking event. So the main value to, to what I could tell of attending that event for the people who went and the reason they were willing to pay eight thousand dollars a pop is that they were able to network with other powerful rich people right so it's a clubhouse so so klaus schwab runs a clubhouse on steroids and you know if you ask me would the rich and powerful of the world figure out some other way to interact with each other if klaus schwab didn't exist i would say yes they would absolutely Klaus Schwab is a, a glorified conference organizer, and he is absolutely raking in the dough right now and, you know, loving the fact that people seem to be enjoying his events. And yes, it's true that when, when the rich and powerful can collaborate with each other, collude with each other, and stay in power or get more power, then they will. Of course they will. That's, that's James to a T. Right? That's exactly what that is. But 
do I think then that some group of nefarious individuals are planning all of this? I mean, if they're that smart and they can look forward that much and, and have such foresight and such control over so many local actors and they really wanted us all to be dead, we'd all be dead. We'd all be dead anyway already. So forget that. It's just that's not that's not plausible from my perspective as an economist. Um, local incentives will just will trump that sort of long lasting cabal hierarchy. I mean, look at something like OPEC. There's a collaborative effort. They try to keep prices down and you know supply restrictions. They can't even do that, right? <laughs> I mean, they've had all sorts of problems with reneging, and you know because the countries that are involved in the OPEC negotiations have their own local incentives, and those incentives will trump the incentives of some you know bigwig hierarchical boss dude, right? So it's just it just doesn't work from from my perspective. So. I've tried to write about that on blogs and then of course also to separate this idea of conspiracy theory, you know, from a rational belief that people who are in power will try to stay in power through any means possible. We know this from history. If you are a student of history, you know people will will lie, steal, kill, kill their own children, their own family to stay in power and to get more power. They just will. Power is an aphrodisiac. It is it is a it's bad news. It is a hard drug. And so why would we be surprised if people in power would indeed liaise with other people in power if they think that it's in their interests? Is that conspiracy? I mean, it's conspiring with another party, I guess. It's conversing with them to try to, to do to get an advantage. So if you want to call that a conspiracy, fine. But, you know, if you don't believe in a conspiracy, if that's what a conspiracy is, then you're very naive. <laughs> so... So yes, I have been frustrated by some elements of the resistance that have really gone off on tacks that I think are not helpful to us, trying to kill the head of the snake and, you know, talking about the, the globalist agenda and all this, I, you know, yeah, there's a lot of things that are happening in the world right now that are concerning. I think we need to be proactive instead of reactive. We need to chart a path forward for Australia that includes institutions that we want that are going to be more resistant to some of these forces that we don't like than the institutions we have now. And just railing against what we have now without a practical plan for changing what we have now, I think is just destined to failure. So that's what I've been focusing my efforts on is trying to draw up those kinds of blueprints. And, and I, I mentioned to you before the interview that there's a a new blog that should be posted pretty soon on Brownstone by myself and my co-authors on the Great COVID Panic, uh, which will be called um, How to Cut Through the New Gordian Knots. And that blog gives some ideas uh, about where we need to go and why we need to go in those directions. You finish the the, the Great COVID Panic with a, a set of recommendations to avoid a repeat of the, the Great Panic uh, in each of our key institutions that allowed the great panic uh, to uh, take hold and then the illusion of control because there there will be a if not another pandemic a mass outbreak and uh, there's a whole industry of of Janes now who every time there's an outbreak like we see in 2022 we had the monkeypox outbreak which uh, disappeared when uh, the at-risk group got vaccinated, which was the right strategy. Then there's periodic outbreaks of uh, Ebola. And then there's a bit of hysteria at the moment about uh, bird flu. So there's all these genes saying, look, this is going to be the next thing. We we need to be uh, prepared. Uh, but uh, they'll, they'll, they seem like they'll never like, get out of that sort of mindset. Uh, but uh, as, I, as I said to you before, there is studying this uh, intr introspection happening in, in science, uh, in uh, government, some governments to, to various degrees. And uh, so there's still a lot of, uh, there's good things that are happening, but there's still a lot of important choices. Uh, the one thing that really concerns me like because you talk about the need for an independent public health agency uh, i am very scared about what a cdc australian cdc could could bring could just seeing how the, the yeah. us cdc still recommends masking two-year-olds the uk health security agency that's pretty good in surveillance and actual raw data so i'll allow you to explain uh, what you mean by uh, reform of these institutions? Yeah, so I agree with you. I think uh, the idea of an Australian CDC is a, a terrible idea um, because it's basically more technocracy on top of the existing technocracy that failed us. So why would it work? 
the inspiration for that recommendation was really Sweden. So Sweden, as you know, had an independent health agency that was headed by Anders Tegnell. And because of Sweden's cultural norms and the essentially the way in which you are indoctrinated as a Swede, if you are going to go into one of those kinds of jobs, um, it was it was fortuitous that Anders Tegnell, with those kinds of norms and that kind of indoctrination, was simply not captured by the fear. And he was not so so beholden to the polity. So when we say independent health agency, that is what we really mean, right? Independent of the polity, not bound to whatever the politicians would like. And that doesn't mean just not able to be told what to do explicitly, but it really means not so tethered in terms of appointment systems and and gray gift networks and sort of exchanges of favors, because that is what we see in Australia hugely on almost every sort of industrial front that you can imagine. We have a large amount of that kind of corruption. People who are engaged in you know, regulating an industry used to work in that industry. People who um, are in an, a particular industry are hoping that they'll be able to get a post in a government uh, after they get out, or maybe their their uh, child will be able to get job a job somewhere in the government, and so they have an incentive to play nice with the government, right? There are also these kinds of links and networks between people who are at the top of government and ministries and politics and tops of industry, and you have a lot of political appointments of the people who are at the top of bureaucracies and the people who are even at the tops of some public uh, publicly funded entities like uh, like universities, so. What our thinking is, is that if we could somehow break the link between politics and, and, and big money, therefore, and resource allocation decisions, so decision making that's supposed to be on behalf of the people, then that would be a step towards actually getting resources allocated in ways that were good for the people rather than good for the people in power which is just a subset of the people, right? So economics concerns itself with the maximization of welfare of the whole people. Everybody, everybody counts, not just the politicians, not just the, the old people, not just the young people, not just the bureaucrats, not just any small group, but everybody. How do we get a voice of everybody to be represented in the way the decisions are made in a ministry of health or a, a department of education or anything else? Well, we try to separate the politics from those decisions. And so that's the motivation for the idea of an independent health agency and indeed an independent ministry of many things, which we could have more chance of, of developing if we were to put in place institutions which supplanted the political appointment system that we now use. So right now, politicians, generally speaking, appoint a huge number of different people to roles across the bureaucracy and the civil service. But instead of that, we could have citizens directly doing that. We could have a, a jury of citizens, as we do for criminal trials or civil trials that are big enough. We have a bunch of people. Everybody who is a citizen is on a roll, and your number may come up, and then you have to spend some time on a jury. And what would you do? You would select the next minister of education, let's say, or the next minister of health, instead of having that minister be chosen by a politician. And you know, this is not without its problems, but we feel it's a it's a solution that's better than what we have now in terms of elevating the voice of the people as a whole. So this is a, a pr proposal we have that is in the book that's called Citizen Juries, and it's something that we talk about further on the Brownstone Institute already, and we also mentioned it in the new Gordian Knotts piece that's coming out soon. So that's one possible direction of, of development is basically more direct democracy to bring more of the voice of everybody into decisions that affect everybody, rather than having those decisions be made uh, to benefit a small group. It's it's a very uh, like obviously the the more uh, obviously the more uh, the citizens are directly involved and there's more discussion and more debate. Uh, that is obviously what we should have had from the beginning. It's happening more now, but uh, those uh, the. The, the recommendations that uh, it could, like, in my opinion, because we, we already have some, well, independent health institutes in Australia, some are okay, and there's there's one that's particularly bad. And obviously you have some chief health officers who are very good, uh, like uh, Queensland's uh, chief health officer, Dr. John Gerrard, and then you have Victoria's chief health officer, Brett Sutton, still 
uh, uh, banging on about all the uh, the COVID NPIs. So it's 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 sort of it's hit and miss with depending on the people, depending on uh, what how the institution develops. Yes, and again, you're not really seeing an independence there. I mean, these these are not independent institutions. You know, the Burnett Institute, for example, is not independent. Most of the people who work there will have links to either politicians or big pharmaceutical companies or some other big interested party, right? I mean, I, I'm very, I'm. It's it's interesting. I have not realized this really, in, you know, until the COVID era. But I am uniquely independent amongst a lot of uh, sort of scientists in Australia. There are, there are some other people who are independent as well, but they de- generally don't get big platforms. How do you get into big positions of power in big organizations that take, you know, they get big contracts to make big recommendations about big decisions in this country? You, uh, you know, you get on, you get friendly with politicians, you get friendly with funding agencies, you, you play the game, you know? And, and I basically have been able to avoid playing the game and still have managed to get promoted to a, to a position where I can speak like this, right, with people like you. So I think that's, that's important to remember. When we say independent, it doesn't mean anything unless it's, you know, unless you really have people in there who don't have skin in the game in terms of their own reputations, their own wallets, their own power. And, and again, I would, I would challenge you that, that most of the things you think are independent in this country are not. Um, how to break that again, citizen juries is one. Another is to try to rotate in personnel. So back in, gosh, when would it have been? It's when I got the, uh, best, you know, economist award. I think it would have been 2019. I remember there was a, a big discussion then at that time about the banking sector and, you know, financial sector and, and whatnot. And one of my suggestions was to bring in overseas regulators rather than having the existing Australian regulators like APRA and ASIC, because those regulators are captured. Everybody knows it. <laughs> we just don't say it. It's an independent regulator, but it's not independent at all. Those regulators are, are absolutely not giving objective advice about the sector, and they're not requiring the sector to do what an independent, really independent regulator would require it to do. So bring in bank inspectors from Germany or or. Ghana, for that matter, any place that has a, a banking sector where you can, you know, get people who are skilled in analyzing financial statements and whatnot, get them to fly in, do their analysis, and then fly out. Um, what does this accomplish? It accomplishes the breaking of those links, those unseen links of dependence, dependence, not independence, but dependence, which cause those decisions made by people who are put in those roles to not be aligned with what is good for the Australian people. I think one of my commenters has said, let's be serious here. It's going to get messy. And uh, I'm sure uh, that, uh, well, given we've seen the collapse of Silicon Valley uh, Bank, <laughs> you'll be uh, talk- talking about that again in the, the not-too-distant future. But uh, one institute which is independent is the the Brownstone Institute, uh, which uh, go to its uh, about... A section, uh, so it's like it's fair to describe it as a. I know you don't like ideological labels, uh, but its message is very libertarian. I mean, a vision for a society that places the highest value on the voluntary interaction of individuals and groups while minimizing the use of violence and force, including that which is exercised by pi- public or private uh, authorities. And uh, it was founded by, as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, Jeffrey Tucker, who's a, a longtime uh, libertarian author and, and commentator. And uh, so tell us about Brownstone and how you all uh, got together, because I've, hmm. I've followed Jeffrey Tucker's work for, for years. Uh, he's been longtime a libertarian advocate how and also what does brownstone actually mean yeah um so yeah very very uh interesting story there actually so jeffrey started speaking out against the the madness the policies that that he saw that were coming in i think it was january 2020 so he was really early off the mark i mean i i wasn't seeing this until march um and and most people even now in the in the sort of anti-lockdown camp they they'll they'll crow with pride if they were seeing it by march but but january wow that was pretty good so he started writing very early uh, very sensible things about covid and uh and he sometime in the i think middle of 2020 or 
towards the end of it, wrote me an email the first time I'd, I'd heard from him directly saying, uh, hey, I, you know, I've heard your stuff, um, you know, send me anything you want. We'll publish we'll publish you on COVID. Um, and this was when he was still working for the American Institute for Economic Research. Right. And he was basically blogging there. And uh, anyway, I said, well, th thanks. But, you know, I, I've got my got my uh, hands full over here trying to <laughs> trying to untangle the knots of Australian COVID madness. Um, and then my co-authors and I, Paul Friders and Michael Baker, and I started writing the manuscript for The Great COVID Panic sometime in second half of 2020, because we just, you know, we'd been going back and forth and writing things and, and, and you know, doing interviews and podcasts. And we we're just like, what is going on? Why, oh, my gosh. What is Why is this not fate? Oh, my gosh. OK, it's a crowd formation. Oh, my gosh. And look at the politics. Uh, oh, and look at this and look at that. And we thought we've got to write a book. We've just got to write a book. We've got to write this thing. So we started. And in May 2021, we had a draft. And so we started sending that draft around to befriended colleagues, people who we thought might be interested in this uh, in this work and just asking them for feedback because, you know, we were planning to self-publish. But Michael lives in Thailand and, and the plan was that he was going to go try to find some El Cheapo printing house there in Thailand and just print it. And we'd hope to, you know, sell a few hundred. So I sent it, amongst other people, to Jeffrey Tucker. And I remember very distinctly, I sent it from a, a hotel in Canberra because I was down there to address this uh, group of, of, what is it? I don't know. The, I don't even remember what it was called, but it's basically a group of politicians from around the country. And I was telling them about how bad, you know, COVID policies were. I sent it that night. And then the next morning, um, I think it was, or it was, I don't know, very, very soon afterwards, I got an email from him and I said, uh, where, where, who's publishing this? And then I got another email from him that said, no, 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 scratch that. I, I need to publish this. And of course, he at the time was still working for the American Institute for Economic Research. And so it was I was sort of, do you have a publishing house? Is there any, you know, can you actually publish this? And then he started saying, yes, well, I'm planning to start a new uh, think tank. And, uh, you know, I love this. I, this is the I, I stayed up all night reading this manuscript. This is a book I, I never thought it would exist. I, this is perfect. I want I want us to to launch with this book. And so then started a, a period of maybe eight weeks or so of, of roller coaster up and down. We wasn't sure he was going to get the money to be able to publish it. And, and at one point he said, look, I'm just not going to be able to do it. And so we went back to Michael and said, okay, well, fire up the inquiries back to the uh, El Cheapo printing house. But finally it seemed, okay, yes, we can do it. And so we got him the manuscript on the 1st of August and he published it the 1st of September. And that basically launched the Brownstone Institute. Brownstone, it comes from his mother, actually, his mother suggested it. And, um, it basically is the name of the stone used to build uh, a lot of structures in the American Northeast. In fact, I used to live in a brownstone, brownstone walk-up in Brooklyn, New York, for a couple of years back uh, in the in the nineties. And it's a you know essentially also called freestone, and it's a symbol of the you know the, the building blocks of a free society basically. So, and I've met Jeffrey; he's wonderful in person as well. Uh, last May, I went over to the U.S. for a scientific retreat that he was sponsoring, and uh, and wrote a lot of things together with a lot of like-minded colleagues. Um, hopefully, we'll be seeing him again this year, if possible. And, uh, and I know he works like a dog, and he works on a minimal budget with a shoestring staff. He, he has a tiny little apartment. And he's very modest as a person. Um, you know, his, his lifestyle is just you know nothing like the rich and famous, and it's entirely privately funded. The entire Brownstone Institute exercise, and they're trying to sponsor scholars who get kicked out of their various positions, uh, give them give them fellowships to be able to continue thinking and writing on COVID issues and and the path forward. So I definitely do encourage your your readers to or your listeners to check it out. I got to meet him ten years ago at the the last uh, Australian. Mises seminar and obviously a lot's changed in the world uh, since then. Uh, mm -hmm. Now, if you want to, to purchase uh, The Great COVID Panic, well, go to the thegreatcovidpanic.com there. Uh, so uh, you are, it, it is being sold on Amazon, so you have, haven't been <laughs> kicked off kicked off there. Uh, no. That's where I uh, got the book and uh, you're second book uh, co-authored with uh, Sanjeev Sablok is uh, published by Conacourt Publishing which fun fact uh, a decade ago I worked for when it was based in in Ballarat Melbourne so they've been publishing great books contributions to Australian political policy debate for for 20 years so I encourage because they are in-depth books and you will learn a lot about well the, the 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 great covid panic has a lot of good 
philosophy and history in it. And uh, the uh, the second book, it, you learn a lot about the inputs that can go into measuring. It's a good crash course. Thank you very much for the kind words. Yeah, it was. It's been a great pleasure and kind of cathartic to be part of. Um, producing those those books um, during this period, so I think I, I probably couldn't have lived with myself if I hadn't uh, done something in that in that direction. So I'm very very happy to have those books out there. Oh, we look forward to to more of your contributions. If it's uh, not on COVID policy, then on uh, the economy and uh, banking. I very much enjoyed your. Uh, a analysis on uh, Chris Kenny tonight about Jim Chalmers' terrible monthly uh, essay. Uh, but uh, thank you so much uh, for joining me uh, tonight. I know you're uh, busy uh, producing your excellent uh, research, uh, educating university students on sound economics and getting important information out to the public. Uh, through mediums such as this. So thank you for your time. And where's probably the best hub uh, for people to, 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 to find a collection of your, of your work? I know that uh, you have a, a profile on the, the website. Uh, yeah, I do have that. Um, I honestly don't put much effort into self-marketing. So I suppose probably the best thing is go to Google Scholar. You'll probably find a lot of my, my articles there. Uh, or again, if you go to the Great COVID Panic uh, website, you can at least get that book there. And there is also for free, the download of the executive summary of the lockdown cost benefit analysis. If you go to news and events on the Great COVID Panic uh, website, you can just download that executive summary for free and decide whether you want to buy the whole book. So those books can go can be, be uh, sourced there. Otherwise, probably just look under Google Scholar. It's probably the best place. And of course, brownstone.org is, is free to read as well. Absolutely. And you can look up articles by different authors. So if you could look up everything that I've written, everything that Paul Friders, my co-author, has written, we've written a lot of stuff together. Um, and then a, a number of other uh, wonderful uh, writers who have been contributing to Brownstone over the years. So yeah, thank you very much for having me, Tim. I really appreciate it. And good luck for, for Q&A tomorrow night. I've got my own show, my Tim's News Explosion at, at 8.30. Uh, f normally finishes around 9.30. So I hope to, to catch it, but good luck. <laughs> Thanks very much. Yeah, I appreciate it. All right, everybody, uh, that's Wilmsfront uh, for a, another week. Thank you again uh, for joining me. I hope you found the discussion uh, with uh, Professor Gigi Foster very uh, stimulating and insightful. She's both uh, brave uh, and also extremely diligent and hardworking. She, just, she has produced just so much in her academic career, just uh, so much good, uh, factual, well-researched work. Uh, so I, I thoroughly encourage you all to to check it out. And uh, as I mentioned, I'll be back tomorrow night, 8.30 p.m. Melbourne time. I will be back on the, hopefully, the Unshackled's YouTube channel, if they, uh, hopefully they don't take uh, this uh, discussion now. Of course, it will be over on Odyssey. We'll definitely be streaming to Odyssey, Wilmsfront channel, and, of course, DLive. Uh, always at 8.30 p.m. Melbourne uh, time. So obviously be covering uh, the Silicon Valley bank uh, collapse, uh, why it collapsed and uh, why it was pumped up. I'll be doing a International Women's Day uh, introspection reflection and why it wasn't as big this year as it was previously and also be traveling to the UK uh, where uh, Rishi Sunak and Suella Braverman's uh, new, uh, new solution uh, to try and stop the votes, we'll see if they can, has uh, turned into a, a whole circus about uh, what a UK BBC football pundit uh, Gary Lineker uh, said about it, which led to his suspension. So I'll be covering all that uh, tomorrow night on Tim's News Explosion. There'll be new uh, reports uh, from uh, report from Tiger Mountain with Richard Wollstonecroft out this week. Uh, so the I filmed a bunch of uh, new pro new reports with him two weeks ago. And uh, so uh, the first two that have been uh, released are the first two in a cancel culture uh, trilogy. Uh, so uh, the, the the one that I'll be releasing later this week will be 
there will be the completion of that trilogy. And of course, uh, the unshackled.net is where you can find our articles and production archives. And remember, if you uh, want to uh, support the work of the Unshackled, if you but don't want to send through a super chat, you can take out an Unshackled premium membership, $5 bronze, $10 silver, $25 gold, and $50 platinum uh, per month. Uh, so please consider uh, supporting the Unshackled so we can continue to bring you uh, insightful Wilms Front uh, shows uh, so, uh such as this obviously it's not just the a lot of preparation and time goes into uh shows as well particularly uh preparing to well uh well let, let's just uh say it a lot of preparation goes into interviewing a, a legend such as Gigi foster make sure that uh, you're across your brief so you ask uh, insightful uh questions uh, but that's all for tonight thank you everyone in the audience for your contributions and comments again you uh you contribute uh to uh the shows as well creating uh such a good discussion live environment as well so that's it for tonight and i'll see you all tomorrow night for tim's news explosion stay safe stay sane stay free uh stay healthy and also stay happy as well i just make up this outro with a bunch of stay <laughs> whatever's in the news this week it's never it's never scripted i think it's better that it comes it comes out that way all right good night everybody thanks for tuning in to wilmsfront visit timwilms.com to view the archive of episodes and keep visiting the unshackled.net to view all our shows and to keep up with the latest real news and analysis 